This is the Wealth Standard Podcast, the gold standard in all things financial. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to episode 193 of the Wealth Standard Podcast. And I have uh, a pretty cool guy in the office right now. Even cooler, he's wearing an MMA sweatshirt. <laughs> as if as if you weren't intimidating enough, now you have to wear like an MMA. If you ever, if you ever, if you ever want a guy like in your corner, if you're in a dark alley, it's, uh, it's Andy Tanner. Oh, the bigger you are, the harder you fall, man. Well, That's not true. I doubt that. You know me. I'm a teddy bear. No, you're not. You're, well, you are, but you're not. <sighs> Andy, how's it going, dude? Oh, so good to be with you, Patrick. Yeah, you know, likewise. It's been a while since we've talked, so it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to this. I sent you a little a little picture the other day of when we did uh, the Cashflow Well Summit, and I was like, <laughs> so I like grew facial hair so that I'd look like. Because you know I Because if, if we had a picture, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not like yeah, a little boy. You know I'm not masculine <laughs> enough to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what's new? How's life? You know, it's really, really good. It's a really fun time to be an entrepreneur. There's never, you know, I don't think there's ever been a time that there's been more challenges for people to face, but I also think that there's never been a time with so much opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a wonderful time to be an entrepreneur, a wonderful time to be an investor, and a great time to be a student because there's so much you can learn so fast. Well, I think it's it's interesting these, and we're going to go into a a really cool book today that you guys are reading as Rich Dad Advisors. Called the road, the road to ruin by by Jim Rickards, but but I would say you know in in this kind of arena that we're in, there's so much information, there's so much perspective, so much bias, so there's a ton of opportunity, but same time it's kind of you have all sorts of kind of diverging type of opinions and right. biases and people are right you can write a book in you know a month these days yeah and so you have everybody kind of coming out with information and uh, it's sometimes really difficult to filter right what's rhetoric right what's fact what's fiction so you find that difficult there's tons of I mean yeah the, about all the books that you can read it's like and it's it's in it's insane you know and they're all pulling kind of in different directions sometimes i i agree i think uh you know we do you know you mentioned being a rich dad advisor a lot of people think that's a teaching role and it's really not we're just students uh, we study a ton and we get together once in a while as students you know and robert is a uh, robert kiyosaki he's an insatiable learner and so i agree it's it's tough to know what someone's opinion is but what we'll do with a book study is we really have very few rules we just say hey what did the author say mm-hmm. so rather than coming with our own opinions uh, we, we leave those outside, you know, we check those at the door and we just say, okay, let's take a look at what this guy's saying mm-hmm. and really understand what he is saying. And then after that, you can go back and, and put it in context and say, well, you know, is this baloney? Like you say, is it opinion? Is it rhetoric? Does he have an agenda? Does he have a bias? Almost everybody does. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, if you don't read, then you can't make those evaluations, you know, well, if you're reading, well, if you're you know, reading, you could read from your perspective, right? Which is just a, a filter to the information. So you're reading, yeah. you're not reading as if, you know, as what they're saying, you're reading what you think they're saying, which yeah. is biased and short-sighted. So yeah. no, it's a, it's a powerful way to learn. Yeah. We all have a conf, we all seek confirmation bias. We yeah. would all, we all, you know, it, it's a, a bigger picture is this when a human brain uh, encounters information it, it probably processes it in at least two ways. Number one, 
does this information fit with what I know? Mm-hmm. Is it logical? Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Is, is there deductive reasoning? You can say, oh, this, this could work. This could make sense in the world. But there's also a part of this, and it's the dangerous part, that reacts uh, to says, well, do I like how this information makes me feel? Mm-hmm. Is this good or bad? It, it doesn't care whether it's true or whether it's false. It just says, does this make... And that's the, that's the danger of it. So I don't want to discard something simply because it makes me feel uncomfortable or it suggests that I'm not in an advantageous position or that it gives me bad news. That's not why he's reading. Uh, we, want to, we want to approach it more intellectually and logically rather than emotionally. Say, okay, is what he's saying make sense? Is it possible? You know, what, how, does this, how does this jive with the other things I've learned? And then you do your best to make decisions. Well, it changes, it, I mean, it changes what, you, what you learn, right? Because if yeah. you're going oh, in through yes. that filter, oh, yes. like you, you have certain things and it's kind of like you're, you're, you may be justifying uh, or you know, you're invalidating what contradicts, but you're justifying what you agree with. Yeah. So it's interesting how, you, how we read sometimes, but you don't really learn from that. You learn based on, okay, I'm not going to have a bias. This guy, he may have a nefarious way of looking at the world and the economy and but I want to look at it from his standpoint and see how what his experiences has shown him which are yep. totally different than mine yep. his background is totally different than mine what you know what can I what can I glean from that and then after the fact you know figure out what has merit and what what doesn't that's the well, whole edge, it, edge of the coin type of at the conversation. very least it's fascinating because of Rickard's history and story and the meetings he's been I mean he's been in a lot of meetings yeah. where I would have loved to have been on a fly on the wall on the, watching that Jeez. stuff and so he does have, you know, he's, he's speaking through his lens, but nonetheless, he's been in places and situations, uh, that are pretty big, big time. And, uh, I, I like listening to him. No, so do I. And he's, yeah, he's a fascinating guy to, to listen to. Right. And he tells some you know, good stories, but I would say the first, and I first read his currency wars book. But that's when he went in and talked about the like the war games. This was years ago that he did it. Yeah. But they talk about the war games that uh, the United States government plays, mm-hmm. right, to simulate potential threats, not just you know physical right. threats, but uh, economic cyber threats, threats social threats. threats. Yeah. and there's certainly uh, warfare. I mean, it's a tactic. There's no question. This is goes back to uh, you know even to the Revolutionary War when. We didn't have a U.S. dollar in the I mean, we just declared our own, uh, you know, stake our claim here. Mm-hmm. So we're independent from you, Britain, and so they, uh, you know, the Continental Congress got together and they came up with the Continental. It was yep. a fiat currency. It was yep. out of nothing. And they will hear these Continentals. Well, the Brits, uh, they counterfeit. It was pretty easy to counterfeit in those days. Everything was written down on paper. Yep. So they flooded our they flooded our country with uh, counterfeit notes. And it collapsed. It, it assisted. It would have collapsed anyway, but it assisted and and sped up the collapse of the continental. So it's economic warfare. Well, I think, yeah, and, we, and we can go off on a tangent of that for a little bit because if you look at today, I mean, everything's fiat. Everything's everything's paper. Out of nothing. But the difference between today and then is you have more. I widely it's it's more widely used right mm-hmm. more widely acceptable acceptable now it becomes you know has a lot more power behind it yeah. and it's the it's more of the faith associated associated with it that you give it to someone and they will accept it 
and then you can you know get your good but they can take whatever that acceptable currency is and exchange it for something else right of equal value right what it, what i think the discussion does is it it's a spur to all of us to learn more because so much of it's counterintuitive if we're new to it for example why would i want the value of my own currency to go down that's very counterintuitive mm-hmm. why would china devalue their own currency well it's trade it's trade yep and and to learn it's part of your financial education is to begin to ask those questions say, well that doesn't make any sense well and again like we said let go of the bias yep see what's really being said and then maybe you can figure out where the logic is yeah, cuz it may not make sense to you yeah. right but if they were if they were doing it, it probably makes sense to them. <laughs> None of us have a correct map, yeah. but the only way to correct our map and get as close as we can to whatever reality is is to study, listen, evaluate, uh, and that's what we're going to do here. No, and that's and I, I love Rickards because he uses. I mean, he he speaks very, he writes very clearly, mm-hmm. and but he uses just a, a lot of different examples to kind of formulate his uh, his narrative, right? Yeah. And what he, and his foundation for what he says is going on. And he also makes, and, and I, I wouldn't say he's very specific on exactly what's going to happen, but he looks at a lot of events of the past that have similarities, yeah. and he formulates kind of this, you know, here's what's most likely to happen in the future. And the road, again, that's that path to to ruin. And then he defines kind of what, what that is. We probably won't get to everything today. Uh, but as you, you know, you've you've seen Rickards before and you've read some of some of his books, uh, you know, really getting into how he, you know, how he starts to formulate it. Is, is there something you learned in there about whether some of the, the stories associated with like Ice Nine or with the uh, stories associated with some of the, you know, other locations like uh, these mis- mysterious, rarely uh, uh, known about installations that the mm-hmm. government has where they, you know, tr- experiment yeah. with certain things. Are they experimenting with like those chemical warfare and, and uh, you know, atomic bombs and nuclear bombs? Have you, like, have you read any of that or, or know there's, about that before? There's several insights um, that he gave me, maybe less about the you know, that's really exciting stuff. You know, here's a government entity or installation that very few it's located here and you know, you, it's by a wire fence and he describes the the what it looks like, you yeah. know, the security clearance and it's very theatrical that way. Yeah, yeah. But the thing he said that I I really took to heart that's that's interesting, he talks about the people who run the uh, regulatory body, the Alan Greenspans at the time. Mm-hmm the Ben Bernanke's at the time. And he talks about Alan Greenspan as saying, you know, he wasn't very smart then, he might not be very smart now. And that's a pretty big... That's a bold statement. It is a bold statement. And whether he's right or not, I don't know, but we we know he said it. And it really does... uh, It's an interesting question because when you talk about warfare, uh, if my gun is bigger than yours, I feel pretty good. And if I have more missile, I feel pretty good. But when you start talking about cyber warfare and even more importantly, economic warfare, it's not safe to assume that the leaders are the smartest people in the room. And in order for a regulatory body to be effective, if they're gonna make monetary policy or regulations, you almost have to begin at the assumption that they're the smartest people in the room and that they know what's best, because policy is how we're gonna work things. So here you you have Alan Greenspan in charge of policy and you have the SEC in charge of regulations Mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. And if uh, if they're not the smartest guys in the room, they don't know what they're doing, 
that's kind of a dangerous place to be because in that sense, your general isn't competent. And it's a, like you said, it's a very bold accusation because Alan Greenspan, some people say, well, he's a dummy. Other people say he's not. But it is an interesting notion to consider his, his, his hypothesis, to say, or not even hypothesis. I mean, he's really saying, this is my opinion that these guys are not very smart. <laughs> but from a cycle, but yeah, but if you think about it from a psychological standpoint, I mean, Greenspan was called the, you know, maestro. Yeah. And then you had Bernanke and have all these different accolades and looking at the complex, and he goes into kind of the complexity theory, but you go into how complex the world economy is. Does anyone really understand it fully? No. Do we have, is there a guy that can step up to a podium and say, this is what's happening. This is where it's going to head. It might be so complex that person might not even exist. Yeah. There might not be the guy who knows. And there, and that that dynamic is why I think they, you know, a lot of these leaders lead with this kind of facade of being intelligent, yeah. being smart, being yeah. educated, so that people will have faith in them to to do something about it. Because most people have no clue how the economy works. Yep. They have no idea what even the economists, according to him, yeah. Serious, and they have a they have an angle on it, but they he all, and he made that point really in the beginning of the book where he talked about you know the different theories of economics. Right, you have the monetarists, you have the Keynesians, yeah. mm-hmm. you have you know the Milton Freeman, which I guess are kind of the monetarists. Uh, then you have the the Austrian side of things, yeah. and they all have elements right where it, it it makes sense, but it may not be fully comprehensive. Right, right, but in but in the end, he's basically saying that how complex it is is the reason why we're in the mess that we're that we're in because. And this goes to you know some some things that I learned from uh, the chief economist at Fannie Mae, who was on the the cruise the other week that you've been on before, but he he talked uh, a lot about you know how the whole meltdown occurred, right? And there were they they were essentially trying to fix a problem, right? And the 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 bond market, yep. right? Com- col- it, it already collapsed because you had sellers. And you didn't have any buyers, so there was no price, so nobody could nobody could sell. But they had to sell, or else the markets would have frozen. So he, basically, it was it was to the point where nobody knew really what what to do. Okay, and but they essentially used their power to uh, paper over problems, which has been done over and over and over again in the past. And it's the only solution that they have, other than correction and collapse, which yeah. they're like so afraid of but looking at the solution the problem it's not a solution it's a it's a it's a band-aid what happened then and this is i had a and i had a fascinating conversation with with him which was you know it's it's not a it's not a band-aid okay well i'm sorry it's not a solution it's it's a band-aid because you're you're creating other problems there's unintended consequences always especially when you're dealing with things at that uh at that at that extreme you you might just be rolling a snowball up a hill it gets higher it's got more potential energy it's got more mass yeah and one of the one of the one of the things a person might consider is that mistakes have consequences and sometimes it's best just to say you know what let's pay the piper but sometimes paying the piper is so costly and so painful and so difficult that we say, well, what else can we do? Yeah. And, and that seems to be what may have happened is we have a subprime meltdown. It's devastating to many people's lives, many institutions. So Federal Reserve, step in and do what you can to save it. So I, I agree. I, I don't know that this problem was fixed 
Um, it might have been uh, kicked. I don't want to say kicked can. The, well, rolled the snowball up the hill a little further. Yeah, it's not going to can down the road is just like it's the yeah, same can. This yeah, is a way different is, can. It's a much is, bigger can. This is like I don't want the snowball to run over me right now, so I'll just make it's it an bigger oil tanker and I'll roll it up the hill a little further. <laughs> um, but he, what he says is, is that you know we had a we had a crash. You know, we had a well, we had a crash in two thousand. That was a dot com deal. But he talks about the 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 subprime crash, the Lehman, the Bear Stearns, and uh, he says that that's a, you know, that's that's nothing compared. That the next one, uh, well, he says we might not be able to roll this. We want we not might not we might not be able to uh, fix this one or postpone this one or defend this one that the federal reserve they had to i mean he he talks about the federal reserve and their resources mm-hmm. and i don't know how why their resources would ever be limited because they can do what they want mm-hmm. but he said you know they might lose faith people in the world might lose confidence that's it in they might lose confidence in the federal reserve when mm-hmm. you invent that much money when you take on that many toxic assets when you buy out I, mean, I remember in the book at one point he says, well, it, it was not even in his purview that the Fed would come to a rescue. He was going to other banks. He was going to other institutions saying, look, you know, we're in trouble. We're going down. If we go down, you guys will probably go down with us, so you better. It's almost like if your tenant was saying, look, I've lost my job, so if you don't pay my rent, you're yeah. going down with me. Yep. And they were all so tied together. But it didn't seem that at the time from his writing – they ever imagined the Fed would step in. Yeah. And this is where, because he had a, a very intimate knowledge of long-term capital management, yeah, which is this whole yeah, example. He was in those meetings. Exactly. And that's that's where I think, I mean, kind of Greenspan stepped in. I mean, that, and I what he was saying is very, very interesting. Let me just see if I can articulate this well. So he, he, he basically, the, the overarching theme is that they're afraid of losing the trust or credibility of, of people. So if you yeah. paper over, like go to go back to you know long-term capital management, they did that because they were afraid of what the results would be if they let it fail. Exactly. Because if they let it fail- Which comes back to what we were saying about sometimes when it's time to pay the piper, it's too big to fail. It yeah. hurts too much, mm-hmm. too much carnage to, to let it fail. But it's as if you have a choice. But they're also afraid of losing their credibility. Yeah, Because exactly. if it fails, it failed under their watch. Yeah. And they will be the ones to blame. So it's, if it starts there, then you go into you know everything that happened in 2008. It's the same thing. And this is what you know Doug Duncan told me. He said that you know that we would have had 25% unemployment. Yeah. It's like, and markets would have frozen. Oh, it's- but at the same time, it's okay. They papered over it. But looking at if they let it fail, it, that might have been that's the whole kind of creative destruction from Joseph Schumpeter well, that he re, that he referred that that Rickers refers to uh, uh, more than once in the book. But if you have that, who knows what we would have learned? Now they may have looked like they had egg on their face, maybe, maybe not. But instead of risking that, risking yeah. their you know their credibility. They decided to it's, exercise that power. Yeah, it's a dangerous idea. It's certainly not a capitalistic idea, but it's a dangerous idea that he says in the book, he says, look, there's a list of institutions that have been deemed as untouchable, that these will not fail. And you pay your political contributions, he says, and you become one of the good old boys and, and you get on that list. 
But the question then comes is, okay, so these guys are too big to fail no matter what. We're going to do whatever it takes. But then there's, there's, diff, there's a difference between too big to fail and too big to bail. Mm-hmm. And if it gets too big, uh, he's, you know, I thought the argument was interesting that the Fed wouldn't be able to do it because they'd lose their credibility and their, their, their standing in the world. That it it just get to the point where like you can't do this anymore. And then it's one of those like if if it's if it's discovered the curtains pulled back. I mean <laughs> yeah. those consequences are like are they, are, ca- are catastrophic, yeah, right? They're dire. So you, so I, I looking at what Rickards is kind of alluding to, and maybe this is more of our interpretation, but I would say with what he's alluding to, he's building this case for you know really wow. starting way back in the day. Yeah, the solution to all of those you know, potentially catastrophic problems weren't resolved. Correct. They were, they kicked the can down the road. And it's been going on for a long time. It wasn't truly deleveraged. There's still a lot of derivatives out there. There's still a lot of, uh, the regulations are very complex. Regulation, I I get it. You got to have some, you've got to, you can't just let people run wild. At the same time, we're naive if we think regulation can fix, look, it's astounding as he talks about the the order of magnitude of leverage that these guys were using to make money. I mean the the you know greed or whatever, but but when you're dealing with money, people are going to do whatever they can do to make the most, the fastest, yep. and and these guys had leveraged ideas with kinds of arbitrage and and leverage instruments to an order of magnitude that's astounding. I mean, I'm a trader. I I, I look at the market every day, and I use a little leverage. But the amount, <laughs> the amount of leverage these guys had, it was astronomical. I mean, it was it was it was completely took my breath away. Well, did they have a choice? I mean, if you're trying to hit certain returns, like that, the, the, especially a lot of those like bond those yeah. bond traders, right? Did they have a, a choice? Because they yeah. didn't use leverage, would they have hit as high of a return as no, they were hitting? They, I mean, no. I mean, it's competitive, so the, you always have a choice. Yeah, it's but, but at the but same when time you're competing, yeah. yeah, you're competing against Goldman and you're competing for investor dollars and which allows you leverage even better because you're using their money not yours. Kind of have to. Then then yeah, is it a choice? Well, you know, it's like going for it on fourth down. Well, we didn't have a choice. Well, yeah, you could have lost the game. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, it, it it did put them the competitive nature of it, but like you said, um is it deleveraged? No. And boy, I'll tell you, he sure has been in some interesting places, some interesting meetings. And when he talks about the parallels of then and now and where this could go, the, the message, so what's the lesson? You know, we know what he said. What's the lesson? Well, get smart, get ready. And, and I always say this, whenever I talk in a discussion like this, Patrick, and you're a risk guy, you're an insurance guy, mm-hmm. it's not the risks you can see coming. It's, uh, and, I, and I've mentioned this to my friend Robert. We were on the phone together talking about this very book. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, Rickerts does a very good job of building his case for a collapse by saying, well, look at this data. Um, look at this situation A, situation B. Mm-hmm. You look at it and you say, yeah, these are serious storm clouds. But going outside of the book, what are the things that Rickerts doesn't see? Because there's always stuff you can't see. Mm-hmm. So the lesson is, look, as you look at these storm clouds, it makes you want to learn how to play defense. Mm -hmm. 
makes you learn how to say, okay, if there's something bad going to happen, how do I set myself up to where I can not have, not get swept up in the consequences? Mm-hmm. How can I, it's protecting yourself. Yeah. And, and I says, you know, we have to do that anyway. Even without a Rickards book, you have to protect yourself against the stuff you can't see. Mm-hmm. And your neighbor's playing with matches. You think, hey, that's dangerous. My house might burn down. But the lightning bolt you never imagined would hit and start it, you know, or whatever it was that started it. So it's just a great message of defense. Yeah, and I think with Rickards, it's, it's he he provides a lot of the data side of things. He also uses you know quotes and he mm-hmm. he, he formulates his argument really well. Oh, he's got and, data. He's not just spouting off. And it's examples too. Like he oh, yeah. uses like, this is what's happened in the past. They you know because he goes into the involvement of the IMF. Uh, especially recently, with you know some of the you know issues in in uh, in Europe, yeah, and and so he kind of alludes to a lot of the things that are uh, that were said in, in meetings at the G20. Uh, he cites you know certain things that they've said would be measurements with what would happen if this happened with a, a, a country of more significance, right? Instead of like a, a Greece or a, or a Cyprus. Yeah. And so, he, so I, I think looking at kind of how he formulates and, and I, and he did allude to it, correct me if I'm wrong, but he did say, you know, you never really know like what the outcome is, is going to be, yeah. but there's, there's, there's like these, uh, uh bread, tra- there's bre- breadcrumbs, there's crumbs that kind of, here's, here's the road, breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb. Here's, here's what could happen. But in the end, you know exactly what the event is, and that's where he goes into his complexity theory. You don't know what the event is that's going to cause the next uh, well, co- correction. The, the, he talks about a snowflake landing on the avalanche. Yeah. <laughs> so I can see the avalanche, yeah. and I can see the potential energy of the avalanche, and I can see this baby's ready to go. Now, can I pinpoint which which is the snowflake? Which one of these million snowflakes falling on this thing yep. is the one that puts it over? No, but I can see the avalanche. I can see the avalanche. I've seen others. I know what they look like, yeah. and this is one. Yeah. Don't know how or why which one triggers it. Another thing that's helpful from this book that I found value in is risk, and I think this is a principle uh, that might be true in, in all cases. There's a relationship between risk and control. I haven't found a way that, 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 to, to disprove that. If I can control the outcome, uh, you know, I have the, the ability to manipulate the outcome to my favor, and I have that power, risk goes down. But when I have no control, risk goes up. Mm-hmm. And one of the great lessons or reminders of this book is that there's this illusion that we would have, that the money even belongs to you, that you can do with what, you know, it's an illusion. You have money in a 401k and you say, well, this is my 401k, this is my retirement. Well, says who? Who has control of that money? Mm-hmm. The Ice Nine, tell me, tell me what you felt about his Ice Nine references well that so we'll, we'll first back up with the with the whole like con- control thing uh i think i think you're 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 right people have this false sense of of what they own what's theirs and i've always i've always looked at how people view money sorry went through all the wrong pipes <coughs> risk of taking a drink during a podcast <laughs> Right down the old windpipe there. See, I'm wearing my MMA shirt, and, and now I'm getting choked out. <laughs> by your, by, by my Ascentia, water. By Ascension. Right. 
No, I was, I was, okay, what was I saying? I was saying that, oh yeah, the, the whole uh, well, control risk, idea. There's risk and control. Yeah, so the, so the, the risk, I mean, the, the whole idea with that is that, you know, we have this false sense of, of ownership, right? Because we think it's, it's ours, but by, you know, these are really intelligent financial institutions, right, that have gone through cycles and they put into place procedures so that if there's other cycles, there's other events that occurred, they're in the position of control, power, right, yeah. and power. So looking at, you know, some of the things he cited with, uh, you know, what some of the uh, language of Dodd-Frank allows banks to convert deposits into, you know, uh, equity, like equity mm-hmm. or, or share. Uh, and, and also, you know, looking at a uh, 401k or looking at, you know, really any quali- by the government qualified plans can all be modified, right? Their language is, is, a, is a tax statute that can be modified by, you know, a vote in, you know, a vote here, a vote there, or executive order. I mean, there's a lot of different things that they can do in order to put themselves in, well, they're already in control, right? But to get at financial resources. So I would say, you know, really in the end, it's the, you know, it's the idea behind becoming educated. That's the only, that's the best way to be in control so that you do, you know, know uh, what your actions are going to be in those type of circumstances. And I think he alludes to that to, to an extent. Uh, but in the end, I, I would say that the only thing you really do have control over is, is where the money comes from in the first place, which is, which is you, right. And the assets that you, that you have, if it's you, you can, you know, if you know how to start a business and provide value to somebody else it doesn't matter what the currency is okay you're the source of whatever that value is it's, right it's a fool's errand to uh seek risk-free and i think that's where a lot of investors make a mistake mm-hmm. is they say look i want risk-free this risk-free that and uh and so but what the book does do well this is what the book does it makes you say how, it makes you take an inventory of where your control may be and where your holes might be. You know, for example, if you're a trader like me and something bad something bad were to happen right now if I was a day trader and all of a sudden my phone dies, you know, can I borrow your phone or maybe the network dies or maybe there's a terrorist attack and I can't get to make the change. That I need. Okay, that's a lack of control, mm-hmm. right? So I would have to have instruments ready. I would have to have things in place that would help me if I'm not there. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's the the idea. But to but to say, you know, people who amass lots of wealth struggle with this because the the fact of the matter is, uh, people can the government can do anything they want. For example, he talked about the confiscation of gold. Guy goes up, builds up a whole bunch of gold. Government passes a law, says, you know, guess what? Uh, this gold is now illegal for you to hold it. You got to hand it over to us mm-hmm. just by law. Okay, so now you go to jail or comply, right? Uh, you say, well, I have some real estate. Government comes and says, well, we want to build a highway. Eminent so domain. This is called eminent domain. So, you know, what control do you really have? You don't have any. Um, you have to have a certain amount of faith and trust in probabilities. And then you try to do everything you can. But to find a risk-free scenario, I think you do the best you can on it. But welcome to investing. Yep. And people say, well, then why invest? Well, there's also risk to not investing. If, I, if I'm if i scared of ICE-9, which is an ICE-9 for those, it's a reference to a... a Kurt Vonnegut's The yeah, Cat's Cradle. The Cat's Cradle. Yeah. And, and in the story, there's a, this uh, science fiction type of compound that... Mm. It's water that freezes at room temperature, and that water that touches any other water will freeze it. So if you dro- dropped it in the ocean, you basically kill the world. Yep. 
And that's what they mean by ICE-9, that the global elite have systems in place to freeze. that freeze everything, lock you out while the global elite clean their house. Mm-hmm. Once they've got their house cleaned, and this happened, by the way, in if you- It's go, happened multiple times. You go see the big short, it happened then too. Yeah. They clean their house and then they'll open it up and then you fend for yourself. Yep. So, so the freeze is like they freeze markets. So they shut down yeah, they the shut stock down, market. Well, they just make a phone call and say, hey, the market's closed for a certain amount of time. And they did and they did this in 9-11. I mean, it, it can happen. In 9-11, they shut the market down for four days. And when you woke up in the morning, if you held airline stocks on that fourth day, <laughs> uh, you know, now if you had put options, you'd have been fine. Mm-hmm. But if you had stop losses, you wouldn't have been fine. Mm-hmm. And, and see, so there you have it. Stop loss is an attempt at control, okay? But it's not um, risk-free. Yeah. Yeah. And if the option, if they keep it closed longer than the option's expiration, well, then I guess you're out of luck too. So, That's interesting. So, you know, and people argue, oh, you know, real estate's the best, gold's the best. Yeah, look, government can take what they want. It, it, you know, no asset class is safe. Yeah. You say the best under certain circumstances, not all yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Go buy gold. Well, they've already proven once that they... Well, that would never happen again. Yeah. Well, you can't it say that. Yeah, and the re- and also real estate. It's like, well, they, you know, the, uh, my I have cash flow coming in. Well, what if they have rent controls? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, there's a lot of you know the circ the circumstances dictate whether something's good. I or mean, bad. I have a really close friend who's an investor. You know, I won't mention his name here. I have a lot of in real estate investing friends. Um, but I asked him about this. Like, okay, you say you have real estate, you're comfortable with that. Uh, what happens when your renters can't pay rent? What happens when, like in Spain, you know what they're doing in Spain? They're not, they're moving in with their parents. When you can't afford rent, you consolidate and you move in with mom and dad. That's the best, you know, families consolidate. They get together and they got, you know, 20 people living in one house. Yeah. I says, what What happens with that? Oh, no, we have Section 8 housing the government will pay for. It. Well, now you're depending on the government. Yep. And I don't trust the government. <laughs> no, in all, yeah, in all, in all circumstances, that's you know, that, there's always things that can change, yeah. and you never can prepare for that. And I think that's what he's saying with the whole Ice Nine is that you know, back in you know during the Great Depression, during World Wars, during you know, there's even been the stock market closed for sections of the day because yeah. of a you know, flash, say, flash crashes. Yeah, they'll say, hey, no shorting allowed right now. Yeah. You know, no shorting And they did allowed. that during the 2008, 2009. You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't short financial stocks, yeah. right? I mean, there's other countries. Uh, oh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'll throw this one. I think I'm right. Like Malaysia or Singapore, their neighbors, one of the two, they said, look, no shorting stocks. And they just, it was like for a long period of time. It wasn't even a temporary thing. It was mm-hmm. like... No shorting stocks in our country. That's the law. And they changed it later on because, you know, if you don't have that yin and yang, it messes up markets. Yep. But the the big lesson is simply this. If we don't learn and we don't consider, then we are more exposed to risk. And we want to protect ourselves to the degree that we can mm-hmm. and uh, weigh it against not taking any risk. What's the risk of not taking risk? Yeah. Well, there's and, and and it comes down to how how do you mitigate it, right? And it's not you know one strategy or two. I mean, it, it comes down to educate yourself first, right? Then position yourself, you know, just according to that education. But I think the ICE nine reference is really dealing with like in the future, like his this whole path, you know, the 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 road to ruin. The sign, 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 event, 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 and then at that kind of you know precipice. 
there is a freeze so they can figure figure it out and they're positioning them, themselves to do it the IMF is all you know most central banks are major currency yeah. you know uh, that you know whether it's China or the US I mean they're all positioning themselves for that and he gives evidence throughout the book and then as that event occurs whatever it is whatever that snowflake is that's what's what's most likely going to happen so if that does happen where does that put you is that do you kind of i think yeah. Uh, yeah that nails it i mean that's the way a person thinks i i always think of investing in four areas of education we want to and he and he mentions all of these not by the names i used but you can see it the book is a better read if you understand this mm-hmm. the, by the way this is not a beginner's book there's a lot of jargon in this book. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of people who have to keep their Google handy when he refers to things because mm-hmm. he, 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 he writes to an audience that is in the know, no question. Absolutely. With his jargon. Yeah, and, he's, is, and he's throwing Latin terms out there yeah. too. There's like, oh, I have no idea. So if a person means. understands, first thing a person <laughs> would understand, if they understand fundamentals and what a fundamental analysis is, that's one avalanche. If they understand how markets change trend and go up and down, that's another one. How to pull cash flow out is there with all that leverage we talked about. But this is really a risk management book. And of all those four pillars, risk management reigns supreme. The guys that are the best at that uh, are the guys that survive and thrive. And the more I've made mistakes investing and watched other people make bigger mistakes investing, the more I'm convinced that you don't want to be a fear monger and you don't want to be chicken little and think the sky is falling all the time. Mm-hmm. You want to be an optimist. Invest, pessimistic investors aren't good investors. Uh, there's a brightness of the future. But with that said, understanding how risk is managed as many ways possible in all asset classes, that's not going to do you any harm. Well, the pessim, yeah, and and the pessimistic side of things is you're letting emotion control the investment, mm-hmm. and and so you look to the future and whatever events occur. I mean, some of them you don't have you don't have control over the events themselves. Things are the way they are right now. Yeah. There's nothing we can do to change it. Okay? Yeah. What's going to happen down the line? Who who really knows exactly what is going to happen? But there's signs that are all around us, and he points to a lot of those signs. Well, we know the avalanche is there. His yeah. his avalanche analogy is the best. His best. One in the yep, book. I agree. I mean, uh, he says, look, you're asking me to. Everyone wants to know what snowflake it is. He says, look, this is chaos theory. It's unknowable. Yep. So let's tap out to that idea and say, look, we're not going to know what snowflake it is. But look at this. There's a there's a boatload of snow here. It's on this ledge. You can see it. Mm-hmm. That that and you absolutely know that if the snow continues continues to, to pile up, you can do the physics and you can do the math to say, look, this is no longer sustainable. This is going to come down. Yep. Can you get that to to predict which snowflake it's going to be? No, nope. that's chaos theory, and that's where yeah, it's interesting because he mentions these so-called leaders that are in the know, right? And he he makes a really compelling case. He says, look. They're basing their forecasts and their policies off of flawed economic theories, the ones you mentioned, the mm-hmm. Keynesian theory, the Austrian theory. Uh, and as Keynesians and, and Austrians fight and battle about which theory is right, mm-hmm. he's saying, you guys are basing your policies on theories that are obsolete. Yep. I mean, you're like bloodletting doctors mm-hmm. back in the 1700s. Your mm-hmm. medicine is bad. Mm-hmm. Chaos theory. It's not, it's not Keynesian or... or uh, or Austrian, it's chaos yep. theory. 
and he makes a great case for that. That was a very compelling part of the Yeah, movie. I love I love that part cuz it made a lot of sense to me because you know, he does allude to the fact that you know, there's there's been this kind of like uh, morphing into uh, new schools like the neo-Keynesian thought mm-hmm. uh, and even some of the Austrian the Austrian school I mean you know Keynes himself talked about the positives of holding gold yeah, it was. but yet today you know Keynesians are more it's all it's all you know uh, it's increasing aggregate demand at whatever costs possible but that's not necessarily what was Keynes Volcker, or who was it in the book where he said he called him up and he says you know I think I, I I'm starting to understand where you come from with this cadence and you're right, right. And the guy says, that's interesting that because I think I just changed my mind. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, cause it does change. And well, I think uh, if people have an open mind, they're not stuck to some sort of like uh, dogma. Right. Cause I think if you get into a certain school thought, pop, uh, but that, yeah. and that's what he talks about where you, where you have, you know, these guys that come up with their theories based on a certain set of variables that may have been, you know, in the past, but, even one little variable could change. I think he talked about that with with Milton Friedman, where it was the volati- It was that that whole measurement of volatility that was off. You know, if a monetarist was to, were to use his kind of theorem today, yeah, dogma is dangerous. No, it is. Um, dogma. Well, it's like Steve Jobs says: don't be tracked by dogma. You're going to live with the results of other people's thinking. Yeah. And there's a lot of truth that the world changes. And if people get their religious convictions, their political convictions, their whatever convictions they have, you got to set those aside and say, okay, what's real? Yeah. Uh, because you cannot, everyone assumes they're right. And boy, that's dangerous. It, it is. And that's what we talked about before. Whereas nobody wants to have that. I'm, I was wrong. Because you lose credibility. Yeah. And when you lose credibility, there could be some you know, catastrophe from that. But at the same time, you know, if you stick to never being wrong, Oof. it's just going to, that's, that's the, you know, really rolling the snowball up the hill. That's a rough deal. So, you know, I think this book's bigger than just one podcast. Yep, I agree. For sure. We probably ought to, you know, do some more thinking and digesting on it and, and, and do another one. But as it stands right now, biggest lessons I, I got from it are reinforcement of find where you can where your controls are and look for where where you can't control things, and you try to plug those holes as best you can mm-hmm. uh, is the way to do it. And you know, people are, people who sell gold are going to say buy gold. People who sell stocks are going to say stocks are the best. People are going to who sell. Real estate, you can say real estate's the best. He's got fine art in there. Yeah. You know, somewhere no, and know, he, 5% in fine art. And I would hope that he would say that he doesn't know exactly what, what to do. He has those ideas that he put that yeah. he puts out there, but he recommends, you know, bonds and he recommends you have stocks, some even stocks. So it's, estate, so it's kind of like hedge that, funds. So you would assume that because of that, he has confidence that, you know, if there is some sort of like catastrophic event, okay, the world isn't going to collapse, right? There's going to be some sort of transition. Cause I think the global elite, as he, as he puts it, they, their, their interest is not for the whole you well, know, the world to go subjects. into chaos. A God needs worshipers. They need subjects. Yeah, a they do. need subjects. Absolutely. You kill off all your slaves, you got no one to work. Yep. So they, they, uh, they, they want to extract as much out of the world as they can to make themselves wealthy, uh, and sometimes they maybe go too far and and actually kill off their slaves. And uh, that's an that's an unfortunate analogy, but it's very very true. Uh, we're a slave. We look at the taxes you pay. You are a slave to. You're forced uh, to do certain things. Yeah, and it'll get more and more and more. 
Well, and, I, and in the end, I, I, I'd say, you know, the ha- having an open mind, right? Really looking at the world, looking at books, looking at opinions, mm-hmm. uh, and as objective as a, a, a perspective as possible is a way in which you can enhance, you know, your, your overall take on things. And when these type of events happen, you, you know, uh, what, what to do for sure, because most people are just, they're, they're caught in this, just kind of this vicious cycle of, uh, of, of what society is telling them is the right thing to do. And I think we're, you know, the, this American, I don't know, the American way is becoming so uh, destructive, not in the present, but also from the future, because we're becoming so much more dependent uh, on others, on government, on technology, on on uh, on business, right? Really, in the end, I think Americans, their idea and their educational level just continues to decline. Now, maybe not educational from like reading and writing and r- arithmetic, but education from really understanding society, economics, uh, finance, because that's where yep. their the wolves pulled over eyes as books like these are, are written, uh, or you have uh, news headlines or certain world events that are occurring, right, that the G20 and the G7, these uh you know the the meetings that occur up in uh, Jackson Hole and, and Davos, people are like oh, but do they really understand what that that means? They understand who's there. Do they understand what decisions are being made? Mm-hmm. What discussions are occurring? If they did. They would definitely have uh, a different, uh, different behavioral behavior associated with it, and that's where today everyone kind of has the same nine to five: go home, sit on the couch, drink a beer, watch a movie, go to bed. Right? It's this whole, you know, this this vicious cycle that people yeah. are in, and it continues to exacerbate. And I think that that continues to pull the wool over people's eyes, allowing for you know really a lot of this stuff to happen behind the scenes. You made you made I I would make this. I would echo this point you made earlier in the podcast. You said something pretty intelligent. You said uh, something to the effect of, if, if I know how to, that I'm the generator of my wealth, my brain is. And this book is a lot about losing what you have, which is called panic. Mm-hmm. It's losing what you have. Uh, people are less worried about losing what they have if they know they have the ability to get it back, if that makes sense mm-hmm. to you. Absolutely. I worry less. I mean, you know what? If if uh, if a great investor gets wiped out, it's painful, but it's not fatal. And that's a big deal mm-hmm. because they know how to make it again. You know, after the big shifts come and the transfer, oh, I didn't see that one coming. All right, learn from my mistake a little smaller. Yeah. But if you know how to, you know, Robert Kiyosaki says it really, really well. If you have to have a job, you're kind of dead. If you're dependent on a job to make money, you're kind of dead mm-hmm. because you know, then you're dependent. But if you know how to make money in the world without a job, eh, you'll make some mistakes and you'll have some loses. Maybe there'll be things that I don't see coming. But if I have confidence in my ability to deliver value to the world, if I understand a little bit about investing, then I can make my own money and I can recover from things. I certainly don't want to lose what I have. I'm not begging for that. I that test, Mm-mm. but when those tests t- come, your spirit, your entrepreneurial determination, your never quit. These things don't need to be fatal, um, even if they're painful. And, that, and those are the things that you really can't have taken from you. I mean, I guess you could, but uh, what you know and who you know. Your I mean, those are your experience, yeah, and and who you know, and that I think that those are some more valuable than anything tangible because that's really where everything tangible comes from. Great read. Uh, Excited to talk more about it. 
really, really gonna. This, this is this this book was different than Currency Wars. It was like someone a lot different than the new case for gold. Yes, felt like someone different almost wrote it. it mm-hmm. The prose is even different. Yep, sounds like a different guy. He's much more. I feel like this is more him. I, maybe it's all the stories. And those those stories are really what. Uh, are not necessarily compelling, val- validate though. his They're point, compelling. but they clarify where he's coming from. Yeah, and and those and and yeah, I think you're halfway through. I'm halfway through the book, but I think that you know, as he kind of makes his case, I kind of know where he's where he's going to an extent. Uh, but the way in which he's formulated it has been really really good. It's been from a, a less academic perspective, for sure, for sure. Okay, Road to Ruin, Jim Rickards. The Global Elite Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis. What a great subtitle. Whoever they are. The cover cover of the book is pretty cool, too. It's got little dollar bills marching up to the top of a hill to be in a fire. To be in this huge fire. I don't know why they march up there. They must not be able to. They must be cold. I'm sure there's a lot of symbolism to that. It pretty much looks like a nuclear holocaust at the top. Whatever's going on there isn't good. Well, I think, yeah, yeah, it's it's a good good read. There needs to be some context behind it. Okay, so understanding is kind of some fundamentals of, uh, of of money. But if you've been listening to this podcast or Andy's podcast for a while, you you understand. I I think well more than way more than well, enough to actually understand the book. Yeah, and you know what? If you don't understand something, you Google it. You, I do that all the time. There's stuff I run to all the time. I didn't know. Yep. So I say, well, what's that? And it's, it's a great way to learn. No, and that's that's what's, smart guy. Yeah. Well, for one, I'll make one last point. With it's interesting to see how our Robert Kiyosaki uh, studies. Because he is, he's very, it's not like speed through something. It's very uh, oh, slow, yeah. methodical. And it's this kind of almost like at a microscopic level, uh, taking one little point or two little points and then, you know, going into that and really figuring out meaning and context. I, I, I can tell you a couple of things. I, I know Robert fairly well. We've been friends for a long, long time. And and when you look at a book after he studies it, there's two things that you'll notice. Number one is there's he has these little tabs he puts in there. There's hundreds of them. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He marks and highlights. And highlights yeah. and writes. But the other thing is, is many people don't engage in encore reading. Many people read a book once and feel that, okay, I read that book. And it's an illusion and a lie and a fallacy. You say, okay, I now understand that thing. And in fact, I tell people, if you really want to learn something, don't read a book, write one. Because when you're the author of the book, I guarantee you that Jim knows more than Robert and I do and you do because Jim wrote the book. And for us to say, oh, we read it, now we understand everything he was trying to say. You don't. Not mm-hmm. even close. Nope. So a book like this, Encore Reading, and we usually take, we usually study one initially for six months, but we also keep the ones we've read over the years close by because we, we don't want to lose those lessons. Mm-mm. And it's interesting to wear, put them side by side, and I think it makes a guy smarter. Hope it does. I don't know if it's making me smarter, but <laughs> it's making the people I hang out with a lot smarter. Well, and also it's the discussion and the study around it, right? When you're able to have a dialogue yeah, with say? others. Because it's what did he say, mm-hmm. uh, and then... You know something that maybe you don't understand. Okay, I do, and vice versa. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you take that, and it actually enhances the learning, the learning process. So that's why I love about your your study groups. All right, man. Well, let's let's do it. We'll do a follow up to this in the next uh, next. Really good to see. It's always fun, man. And likewise, we can talk. We could do this forever. So we got to seriously. We can pull off yeah. like a Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan marathon <laughs> podcast. We should just do those. We'll do one of those. 
a five-hour podcast. Like what? Joe Rogan says, they can put on double speed. I don't care. Or triple. Yeah, that's what he <laughs> says. I can't put it past double. My yeah. mind won't work that fast. Yeah. All right, Andy. It's good having you. Thanks, Patrick. You've been listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast, the gold standard in all things financial. 